Who are the believers at Rome? Jews, Gentiles, or both? How did the wise become fools? What is a reprobate mind, and can that person still be saved? Greetings, I'm Dr. Paul Felter. Welcome to Primal Bible, where we expose church fallacies and flawed Christian traditions with Bible truth. We let the Bible speak for itself. If you appreciate these video podcasts, please consider subscribing. Also, please visit my website, breadoflife.media, for additional resources, including my free PDF chart of your Bible, Rightly Divided. Now, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul from Corinth, Greece, while on his third missionary journey around 58 A.D. When Paul wrote this epistle, he had yet to visit Rome, but was planning a stop there on his way to Spain, a journey he never made. The founder of the Assembly of Believers at Rome is unknown. Tradition has it that Peter started the church at Rome, but history and scripture prove that to be a myth. There is no evidence the Apostle Peter was ever in Rome. Paul states in Romans 15.20 that he would never build on another man's work. Quote, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. In AD 33, a number of Jews and proselytes lived in Rome. Many traveled to the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, described in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, where Peter states that some of those present were strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes. Since 3,000 Jews believed and were baptized at Pentecost that day, it's safe to assume some were from Rome. When they returned home, they told other Jews and proselytes of their experience at Jerusalem and that Jesus Christ was their long-awaited Messiah. Obviously, many Jews and proselytes believed in Jesus as Messiah of Israel because that is the group to which Paul is writing. Chapters 1-8 through eight of the book of Romans are a transition from the basic view of God as Creator in chapter 1, then to the law given to Moses, finally to the doctrines of grace given to Paul, beginning in chapter 3. Paul wants to move the believers in Rome, who believe they are under the law of Moses, hence proselytes, to being under grace without the works of the law. So, knowing this is critical to your understanding of the first eight chapters of Romans, the transition is from simple obedience to God, then the law of Moses, and finally to grace given to the Apostle Paul. Today, we do not live via simple obedience to God, as he is not speaking directly to anyone like he spoke to Noah or Abraham. We also do not live today by keeping the law of Moses, as we are not under the law, but under grace. So let's get right into the text. The first sentence is a rather long one, verses 1 through 7. Quote, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, 
Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. So let's break this passage down a bit and look at some key points. Number one, Paul calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the modern Bibles use the word slave. A slave is someone forced into hard labor for the benefit of another and is not free to depart. A servant or bondservant is one who, of his own free will, places himself in the service of another. The twelve disciples and Paul were willing servants of the Lord, not slaves. Number two, Paul is a true apostle, having seen the Lord Jesus Christ, and also given the apostleship to the Gentiles by the Lord. Number three, Paul was separated unto the gospel of God. Now, this is not a title for a specific gospel, but a reference to the gospel given to Paul by God, which is the gospel of grace, preached during this present church age. It is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, and is focused on the death of Jesus on the cross for sin, his burial, and resurrection on the third day. What I call the DBR gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number four, that God's grace would be extended to the Gentiles was prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Isaiah 42, 6. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thy hand, and will keep thee, and will give thee for a covenant of the people, and for a light of the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light unto the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. The Lord would be the salvation of both Jew and Gentile, but just how the Lord would save the Gentiles and the details of that plan of salvation were unknown to the Old Testament prophets, only to be revealed to the Apostle Paul after his Damascus Road conversion. Number five, Jesus was made in the flesh as the seed of David, but was declared or confirmed the Son of God by rising from the dead. Jesus proved who he was via the resurrection. Jesus is the only human that predicted his resurrection and then did it. Number six, Paul states that he received the doctrines of grace and his apostleship directly from Jesus Christ to give to the nations, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Paul is the only person in your Bible with a ministry to Gentiles. Number seven, those believers in Rome are beloved of God. They have peace with God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Moving on to chapter 1, verse 8. Quote, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. End quote. So who are these believers in Rome? Church tradition declares them Christians. But Paul had yet to preach the gospel of grace, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in Rome. So these believers were not Christians. They were Jews and proselytes that believed in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. They were saved under the preaching of Peter's gospel at Pentecost, 
Repent and be baptized. This gospel Jesus gave to the disciples in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, erroneously called the Great Commission. But that's a topic for another podcast. Jesus called those that followed him and believed him to be the Messiah his little flock. Little flock. Luke 12.32 Now when I quote a scripture passage, I'm quoting the main verse to make a point. But don't simply take my word for anything. Read the surrounding verses or the entire chapter to understand the context. The group of believers in Jesus Christ at Rome began with those returning from the Feast of Pentecost in A.D. 33. Paul wrote this letter around 58 A.D., so the body of believers grew for 25 years. Rome was the capital city and busy with travelers from across the region. It's only fitting their faith should be spoken of throughout the whole world. Verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. End quote. Here Paul states his desire to go to Rome, as he had not yet visited Rome in his two previous missionary journeys. Paul finally made the trip to Rome after appealing his case of treason to Caesar in Acts chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. Quote, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. End quote. Paul desires to see and fellowship with the believers at Rome perhaps to impart some spiritual gift to enhance their knowledge and understanding of the gospel of grace given him by the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, Paul wishes to be comforted along with them by their mutual faith in Christ. Most cities Paul visited on his missionary journeys resisted the gospel, some violently. Seems he would appreciate visiting a city with an established community of believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, quote, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. End quote. The phrase let hitherto means to be restrained or hindered. Paul previously planned to visit Rome, but was hindered in that regard. Paul desired to have some fruit, that is, believers, in Rome via the gospel of grace that he preached in many other Gentile cities. Verse 14, quote, I am a debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the unwise. End quote. In Paul's missionary journeys, many Greeks and barbarians, Gentile foreigners, both prominent and common, believed his gospel of grace. He is indebted to them for their belief in his gospel and in the churches he planted throughout the region of Asia Minor and Greece. Verse 15, quote, so, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. End quote. Here again, it's obvious that Paul had not yet visited Rome, as it is his desire to preach the gospel of grace to them also, as he preached in other Gentile cities. It is obvious that the believers in Rome were saved by Peter's gospel of believe and be baptized, the Mark 16, Matthew 28 gospel, given them by Jesus after his resurrection. 
They at Rome had yet to hear the gospel of grace preached by Paul and those that traveled with him. The gospel of believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be saved. Verse 16, quote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. End quote. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel given him by the Lord Jesus Christ after his conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. His gospel of the grace is the power of God to save souls, both Jew and Gentile. From God's perspective, everyone down through history has been saved by grace. No one deserves to be saved based on their own merit. What God requires of man today is simple faith. Grace comes down from God. Faith goes up from man. But there's something in the middle. The gospel. The gospel defines what man must believe and or do to receive God's grace based on their faith. John the Baptist preached repentance in Matthew 3.11. Peter preached repentance and baptism in Acts 2.38. Jesus preached repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4.17. The apostle Paul preached a simple gospel of grace, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16.31. There are four different Gospels preached just in the New Testament. The Gospel of the Kingdom, the Gospel of Repent and Be Baptized, preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2, the Gospel of Grace, preached by Paul, and the Everlasting Gospel of Revelation 14. I will cover these in detail in another podcast. Verse 17, quote, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Faith has always been the requirement for man. Those declared righteous by God have always exhibited faith. That never changes. And Paul's gospel makes faith the primary requirement for salvation. Verse 18, quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. End quote. If you don't come to God by faith, then the wrath of God awaits you. Without faith, you cannot please God. Hebrews 11.6 You are declared unrighteous and deserving of God's wrath. Verse 19, quote, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. End quote. The characteristics and attributes of God that God desires to be known by man have been revealed to all. His creative power, his love, grace, and mercy, and his justice and wrath. These attributes are clearly seen in his word and also throughout history in God's dealings with mankind. Verse 20, quote, For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, end quote. We can see the character of the invisible God throughout his creation. His power, his love, his infinite complexity, his grace are evident in the things he created. The universe, our world, the plant kingdom for food and beauty, the animal kingdom for food and work, our life-sustaining earth created by God, given to us to sustain life in these fragile bodies. We are without excuse. If we simply open our eyes, the magnificence of God is everywhere. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, 
and their foolish heart was darkened, end quote. This goes all the way back to Adam and is quite prominent during the pre-flood era. Mankind knew God, but refused to obey and glorify Him. Then, as today, people are more interested in their own desires and vain imaginations than the will of God for their lives. Their foolish hearts are self-indulgent, decadent, not caring for the things of God. Their hearts are darkened. They walk in darkness of soul, not in the true light of God, for God is light. 1 John 1, 5. Verse 22, quote, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. End quote. The list of fools who thought themselves wise down through history is too numerous to mention. Voltaire is a great example of one proclaiming the soon demise of Christianity only to have his home used to print Bibles after his death. Also, the word fool here in the Greek is the word moros, where we get our word moron from. So these people professing themselves to be wise, God morons them. And you see them every day on TV. Verse 23, quote, And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. End quote. Well, you've heard it said, seeing is believing. Man has always wanted some tangible evidence or thing to focus his worship upon. Idols of every sort, man, bird, or beast, litter the pagan past and even our world today. The green Gaia goddess image on the paper coffee cup, or the multitude of pagan branding symbols used by corporations, or the icons and images of false religions. All too pervasive in today's world, the wise become fools by worshiping the things of creation which can be seen, idols, instead of the invisible creator God. Idolatry has always been the hallmark of false religions. Verse 24, quote, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. End quote. Idolatry and paganism lead to sexual immorality and perversion. Throughout history, people practiced unclean perversion that dishonors or disgraces their own bodies. And I'm not talking about tattoos. You want a good example of this? Look only to the pedophilia and homosexuality rampant in the Church of Rome that is steeped in idolatry and paganism. Verse 25, quote, Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. End quote. Paganism worships everything but the one true God. They serve and worship the things of creation rather than the Creator of all things. Their worship is a lie. Verses 26 and 27, quote, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their own lust toward one another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat, End quote. Some of the modern Bibles water down this passage, as to be kind to sexual perverts. The King James Bible is quite clear. Homosexuality is unclean, a vile affection, a burning lust against nature and unseemly. God calls this an abomination in Leviticus 18.22. Verse 28, quote, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. End quote. Those that practice such perversions hate God. They hate the thought of a righteous, holy, pure God, as that knowledge is way too convicting of their own abominations. So God gives these people a reprobate mind, a degenerate mind that actively rebels against God. We see this every day in the news, whether it be smooth-talking politicians or rioters in the streets. They are reprobates. Verses 29 through 31. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of murder, envy, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Wow, quite a list of demeaning reprobate attributes. Most of these words are obvious, but a few on the list stand out, at least to me. Debate. What's wrong with debate? Well, debate means argument. We all know people that continually want to argue. That's not a good sign. It reveals some serious issues with their heart, like pride and ego. They've always got to be right or have their point of view. Whispers. Whispers talk behind others' back, generally spreading gossip and lies. Whispers create strife between people. Proverbs 16:28. God hates a lying tongue and gossip. Verse 32. Quote, Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. End quote. Deep down in their soul, perverted reprobates know the judgment of God is coming upon them. They know their punishment is eternal damnation. But they continue in their own lust and seek out others of like-minded perversion. They have pleasure in them and do their unclean deeds together. Some of you may know someone or even have a family member that fits the reprobate description given by Paul here in Romans 1. If God gives someone a reprobate mind, is it then possible for them to be saved, or are they lost forever? Paul, writing to Timothy, states that God would have all men to be saved. God does not want any to go to hell, as hell was created for the devil and his angels, not for man. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. So pray for those ensnared by the devil into a perverted lifestyle. Nothing is more powerful than the word of God and your prayer. To God, a miracle is child's play. He specializes in the impossible. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Luke one thirty-seven. Believe it, pray it, and let God do the impossible. Well, this concludes the podcast on Romans 1. Be sure to subscribe to my channel and click the notification bell for upcoming podcast videos. I'll be doing a podcast video on each chapter of the book of Romans. If you enjoyed this podcast video, please give it a like and subscribe. Thanks for joining me today. See you next time. God bless.